0: Before the age of the cell phone, the birth of a child often spurred the purchase of a camera. I suspect that the Kodak Reflex 3 that now sits on my shelf was the first camera my father purchased around the time that I was born, and which served as the family camera for years. These cameras have been the means by which a personal documentary of a family's life have been created, which would have been impossible over 100 years ago. Now, events big and small, extraordinary and mundane, can be memorialized and shared in countless ways. But those photographs can also play a role in how a child comes to see themselves, especially when there is a dearth of imagery that doesn't reflect what they look like or who they feel they are. Christian Joy Mack has been photographing her daughter, who is of mixed race, and teaching her to thoughtfully consider more than just her appearance, but who she is as a young Black girl in today's world. By collaborating with her daughter and her young cousins, Kristen has produced a body of work that is both poignant and beautiful, and that reminds us that we all deserve to be seen. This is Ibarian X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Well, thank you for doing this. Yeah, when I saw the, uh, the piece in Lightcraft. And looked more into it. I really loved the the work. I mean, just it just visually, it's very beautiful. Thank you. So I just reached out and said, "Hey, let's let's chat a little bit about it because I think it's very interesting work, especially since I always gravitate to finding out more about the, the personal work that people are doing." Yeah, because I think it, it's just ripe for a much more interesting conversation than and it is just talking about the the work that people normally do for making a living. Mm-hmm. And as lovely as that work can be, it seems like people are, they can get more excited about the stuff they have a passion for. And I can see that in the images. So I I'm, i think we'll get the same from the conversation. So thank right. you again for, for doing this.
1: Well, thank you so much for reaching out to me. I'm very honored.
0: Now, you know, you make your, your living as a family portrait photographer.
1: That is a side gig. So I, I make my living working for the for the Cambridge Public Schools.
0: Oh, okay. Well, tell me about that.
1: Uh I, well, I have a job called Family Liaison, which nobody even the family liaisons don't really know what that means, so um, we've been revisiting changing that name, but it's doing family support and family outreach in a time of a crisis, like right now, it's all hands on deck with the liaisons being kind of on the front line, trying to check in to see what families need, what they're missing, who's in a crisis, who's doing okay, who needs lunch, who needs diapers, things like that, how to get Chromebooks to students. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a a community based job that I really love, and that's that's my bread and butter. And then the family portrait photography is my side gig. And I think also you're very right that the the mindset that I bring to that to that work is very different than the perspective I have and the the approach I bring to working with my personal work, which of course is my family.
0: That's you know, interesting. You you wear three different hats, but they're all tied to family.
1: I know. <laughs> It's very Gemini of me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, how did you get into the work that you're doing now? You know, with the with the school district.
1: Um, I was a preschool teacher for a very long time, and then I moved into the public schools as an assistant teacher for about oh gosh, I don't know, fifteen years or something like that. And Cambridge the Cambridge School District is one of the few school districts that have a family liaison position. And my dear friend was the founding family liaison at the school that I worked at for a very long time. Um, And she was retiring. She's actually my daughter's godmother. And she was retiring. And I really loved what she did and learned a lot from her. And I decided to switch out of the classroom and apply for her job. And I got the position.
0: Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And the photography, where does that fit in?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, Well, I have my earliest memory of me realizing that photography was something special. I was about in sixth grade. We went on a a trip. I had some cheap disposable camera, probably, if they even existed. It may not have been a disposable camera. That (laughs) I might be um, dating myself there. And I remember when the photos came back and I remember saying, oh wow, these are really cool. These are really good. Like There was something about looking at the photos where I realized I had some ability to compose well. And I noticed it myself, but I don't think anybody else in my family noticed it. So mm-hmm. it, whatever that little spark was, stayed in the background for a, a while. When I got to high school, I really envied the kids who were in the photography classes, but I was too self-conscious to join one. So I still didn't follow that passion. And mm-hmm. it took until I got to college. And then I started taking photography classes. They didn't. Uh, I went to UMass Boston, University of uh, Massachusetts in Boston, and they didn't have a photography program. So technically, I'm probably self-taught. But I did have about four classes with this fabulous teacher, um, Melissa Shook.
0: So after college, did you just continue photography primarily as a as a hobby, or did when did the, the idea of you know doing this side work, taking family portraits, come into play?
1: Again, that took a while. I did um, pursue it as a hobby. I did. I won a grant to go to the main media workshops when my son was young, before my daughter was born. So I was still studying, still interested, trying to figure out what this passion meant, trying to figure out what to do with it, how to speak with it. Oh, I know what happened. Uh, we, uh, the death of film, <laughs> you know, all the photo labs started to close around here. The custom photo labs shut down. Film became ex- super duper expensive. And that, uh, so that, um, like, so I, I didn't have as much, uh, as much access to being able to print, to buy film, et cetera. So kind of died down a little bit again. And then it picked up when my daughter, who's now 13, was in preschool and I did a fundraiser for the school, just photographing the the kids in the program and the parents could buy the uh, one image for like $25 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I just realized this was some something I was now in the position to pursue. However, I really did decide that I would pursue it so that I could have the revenue to pursue my personal work. so it's really always been a loved side gig, but a side gig,
0: yeah, yeah, and that's and I think that's a really valid way of doing it because some people want to do it more, but they don't necessarily have to make the choice to become a quote unquote full-time professional, which mm-hmm. is another world in and of itself. but if you can find a way of using it to supplement the passion mm-hmm. you know, And and the hobby, quote unquote, in whatever way it manifests itself, Mm -hmm. you know, to pursue personal work or to, you know, if you're like a a birder for doing bird photography, being able to pay to not only get the equipment, but be able to travel to different locations and, you know, just something that allows you to encourage it. I think it's something that really, I think it's as valid a choice as anything else when it comes to photography. God knows I don't want to be a full-time professional working photographer, especially Mm -hmm. right now. It's really, really tough. But the, the project that you've done with your, your daughter started off at an outing by a, a, like a fishing hole or something. Tell us about oh. that.
1: Well, I have two long-term projects. One is specifically about my daughter, and it's called Appaloosa. And it, that's because that's her name, but we call her Apple for short. And I have a second long-term project called Cousins. So my daughter is also in that, and it's with my three nieces. And I did write in in the last interview that um, I was trying to explain when it started, because of course, I didn't know I was entering a a long-term project. I was just, I had taken my nieces uh, back to my hometown in Connecticut, a place we had gone several times. They often came on summer trips with me. Uh, My daughter, Apple, was in the water in this place called Chatfield Hollow, this beautiful, but like this beautiful swimming hole, but like the water's kind of brackish because it's tinted red from all these, that the, it's surrounded by pine cones, pine trees, and so the pine cones fall into the water and turn it red. Very beautiful and unique. But they were out in the water and playing, totally not uh, paying attention to me at all. And they started to reach towards one another. So their like fingers were heading towards each other. And uh, whatever that was about, I don't know, because I was unsure. But it was this really beautiful moment. And I had my camera with me, which I heard you say in an interview that you always go out with your camera. Or maybe mm-hmm. that was some of you were interviewing, because he always with no, the camera. No, that's me. Yeah,
0: I'm oh, always.
1: Okay. Yeah. So that's not me. I'm not the photographer who's always with my camera, and that's something I'm working on. But I had it on the with me. Took the shot of them that I call uh, that I later named Touch, and I realized that there was something there that our interactions, our time together, was really providing me with this beautiful opportunity to observe the girls growing up together and how much they love each other.
0: How did you f- feel that your one, your 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 proximity to them, as well as your relationship with them, made the photographs different from what you were doing when you were photographing other families?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Well, I think uh, number one, they are my favorite people to spend time with. Mm-hmm. We have a, just wonderful experiences, like lots and lots of shared experiences together. So I think just that the very fact that I've been with all, actually all all of them since the moment they were born. I was the uh, labor coach for my sister in law, so I was in the room when all three of my nieces emerged, and obviously I was in the room when my daughter emerged. So we just have this really close connection. I I just believe that that comes through in the in the photography. I mean, of course, when I'm when I'm doing family portraits, I'm trying to to create a moment of perfection for a family. Mm -hmm. That's not necessarily looking for the truth, but it's looking for something polished and pretty and memorable, but not necessarily intimate or showing their real selves.
0: For me, it's sort of an interesting, uh, interesting, especially with with, with your work, because you're capturing moments that are less formalized than the ones you do for the portrait session. Mm -hmm. But I think that. One of the reasons I think your images are effective is because you seem to have a recognition of moments as they reveal themselves. And I'm wondering whether that came sort of naturally to you as a result of just your familiarity with your subjects or whether that came to you as a result of having the opportunity to photograph them frequently.
1: Yeah, I think it's just those. I think I'm just with the girls. I'm relaxed, so it's um, and and we're we're having lots of time together. So it's my own internal intuitive way of seeing can just find a place to exist, you know, come to the surface, and I can and I can find that, and then and then capture it.
0: How did you feel that because it first began as just you photographing your your child, but at some point, the the fact that she's from a mixed race relationship, uh, you're white, and your 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 partner is blacker. Mm-hmm. There is she African American or about another like Caribbean, Haitian, Haitian, American, Haitian American,
1: West Indian? Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So, the, when did the 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 fact that that she was of mixed race start being a factor that either you or her started considering with the continued production of the work?
1: Well, uh, that's also a lovely question. I um I also have a my first child is twenty four. He's already graduated from college, so I had been the mother of mixed race children for, a, you know, a, a longer time. My daughter's 13. There's a big space between the two of them. So having her wasn't, I wasn't experiencing new, like new revelations about uh, what it meant to be in a mixed race family. But but there is something different about raising a girl than raising a boy, in my opinion, in terms of like the Visuals that she is fed every day, you know, out mm-hmm. in the world, what magazine covers she sees, who's on them, what racial background the, or, or ethnicity um, the models are, who's in her storybooks, who's in her fairy tales. So I would say that the first time we had a conversation about that was like a very direct conversation about representation was when we were reading fairy tales together, something that was like a favorite thing for us to do. I'm really drawn to fairy tales because they're so. Mythical and have all these great characteristics of like bravery and sorcery and um, magic and myth. Yeah. So, despite being a feminist, I'm still drawn to fairy tales because they have these other, like, you know, these other fabulous qualities. And one of the things about the fact that I'm a feminist and can read fairy tales is that I can correct the sexism while I'm reading the story. If I find, you know, a valuable, well written fairy tale, I could, I could correct it to her by changing pronouns, by talking about the character or why did, for instance, let me give you an example. Like why is, why is Gretel constantly crying and Hansel and Gretel? How come Hansel's not crying and Gretel is? So this mm-hmm. this could be a conversation and we could kind of work through the kinks of sexism in those um, older stories. But one thing we couldn't talk through right away was I, that I couldn't just replace while reading was the um, apparent, you know, racism in the stories because so many of the uh, fairy tales are still Written with white characters, even though we are free to create illustrations that are up to, are updated. Mm-hmm. So at one point, she was I think in kindergarten, and she asked me concretely, "Why are all the characters in my Why are all the characters in my storybooks white? How come no one looks like me?" So I wasn't surprised by her question, but it gave me a great opportunity to say, "Well." We don't have to settle for that. You know, we can be the illustrators and the narrators of our own story. So these illustrators made these pictures. Why don't you and I make some pictures of our own? So I had created this fairy tale series with her. It was not a series that I ever intended to really show anybody. It was just, mm-hmm. I just wanted to show my daughter that if she wanted to change something, she could. If she wanted to take ownership and like, you know, create her own narration of a story, she could do that. And I wanted her to know that you could resist in a creative way. So uh, we spent, I don't know, maybe about a summer and maybe into the fall, just occasionally taking the camera out and having her dress lightly as a different fairy tale character. Um, eventually I put those in a book for her, you know, just a, yeah. a blurb book. It just gave us a really great platform, also a creative platform to talk about what it meant for her to be, to have to have looks and features that are not, frequently represented in in a in a way that a child of that age could understand.
0: Uh, what's the the age difference between her and her and her brother?
1: Um almost twelve
0: years. Almost twelve like, years. Yeah, oh, wow. That's quite yeah. and yeah. <laughs> usually it's the first child that gets photographed more. Um
1: he did get photographed for a while, but he figured out, don't tell my daughter, but somehow or another he figured out how to make he figured out a way to convince me not to photograph him anymore. <laughs> but I'll be in big trouble if my daughter figures that out. <laughs>
0: Especially at the age she is right now, at fourteen.
1: Yeah, thirteen. Yeah, but yeah. Thirteen. Yes, point,
0: yes. Yeah, yeah. Then it's, yeah. <laughs> At that point, you may have to pay her.
1: <laughs> she probably <laughs> would be open to that.
0: <laughs> so, the, the the experience that you had, you know, being in the intimate racial relationship, and then raising y- your mm-hmm. son, um, how did that sort of develop and change your perceptions of race, and how not only your son, but you and your husband, and later your daughter, were sort of shaped by living in a culture where race is such an issue?
1: I think I had an easier experience when my son was younger because um, Cambridge was a different city. It's in the middle of um, some, some very intense gentrification. So just the, the age difference that we just talked about between my daughter and my son. There's some things my son grew up around that my daughter isn't. Number one, you could be a person, of a family of color you could be an immigrant family in Cambridge 15, 20 years ago, and you could own a home, you know, it was a much more working class community. It was, there was a a larger, well, I'm saying it's a working class community, when I was going to say it's a larger middle-class, but it was, I I mean that in terms of like who owned homes, who had property, who had businesses Mm -hmm. here. It was still a place where uh, your classrooms were very multiracial, ethnically diverse, economically diverse. There was lots of conversation about race and all of in, in district-wide in the schools about and, and about ethnicity. So there was like this room to breathe within that multiracial experience. And at that time, Cambridge had as many mixed race families. Uh, the percentage of mixed race families in Cambridge was the same as it was uh, across the country. I think it was, eleven percent or something like that. Yeah. And it was still a place where you know kids could say things like. Oh, are you going to the, is that, is that the, is that the Portuguese part of town? Or like, oh, you headed over to where all the Haitians live? You know, there was like this comfort, it kind of reminded me of like old school New York. There was like this comfort of being able to just embrace in a really positive way the different enclaves of ethnicities around town. Corner stores, for instance my daughter so 11 years later right my daughter has no idea what a cor- like what a, a corner store is or like there's a place you can go pick up patties or or that there are, or that a town could be sectioned off in a beautiful way by g- different uh, ethnic groups or Im- immigrant groups that have come in it's just a very different city people have been priced out there's no rent control here anymore there was a time when my son was getting ready to go into middle school where um i think that's when the city got rid of rent control so Tons and tons of families had to leave our city, and our city had to combine schools, consolidate schools, while the town right next door to us, which was cheaper to live in and was still, was still strongly and proudly working class, had to build some more elementary schools to absorb the students that we were and the families that we were, were losing. So I say all that to just say that the Cambridge my son grew up in was really different than the Cambridge my daughter's growing up in. It's uh, Condos cost a half a million dollars now with like one one bathroom condos, you know, or more. I'm terrible wow. with math, so it's probably even more than that. She doesn't have a sense of like, I, I guess it's, the major difference is the Cambridge my daughter is growing up in is a have and have nots, And often the haves are white and the have nots are people of color, right? It's just a much more polarized city. And I am going off on a tangent, kind of forgetting what you were asking me, but I think no, no, you were no, saying-
0: no, you're, You know, you're on um, point. I was just kind of wondering in terms okay. of how your own perceptions of race were affected by um, the fact that you're in a mixed race relationship and that you were raising mixed race children as well.
1: Yeah, well it's okay, so let me circle back to that to say that it was really um it wasn't there was it wasn't a very jarring experience to be in a mixed race family in Cambridge of like of yesteryear and it's a bit different now. And I think what you're trying to ask me is like my personal like my personal growth and things that were mm-hmm. that I learned through that experience. Yeah. Oh, that's such a fabulous question, and I—it's—I really have to say that in all the time that I've done this work, it very rarely has been even addressed that I am a white woman photographing black children, my children and my nieces. It's in there somehow, but this—you're—you're you're asking it in a very direct way, and I—it's really loving that you did. Well, let's see. Um, I mean, I would say also for both of my children, they spend more time with the Haitian side of the family than with my with, than with my side of the family. So there's not a lot of, um, and they also, I would say that they both also identify as being, as being black. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: As you would know, like there's uh, identity is so personal and that is what they've landed. That is what they've landed on. I think my daughter more than my son would identify as biracial. My son is never, he's always identified by the outside world as black. So there's, he, he doesn't really have an experience where people are seeing him or I or thinking of him as a biracial person. Whereas my daughter gets asked more questions like, well, what are you? Are you, are you, are you, um, are you, are you, are um, you, are you mixed? Are you Middle Eastern? Are you Spanish? Are you from Puerto Rico? So she gets asked like about her identity, I think more often than myself. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. so much yeah.
0: about appearance. Cause I know growing up, if I had grown up in New York, yeah, which I grew up in Los Angeles, I was born in New York, grew up in Los Angeles that yeah. to a great degree I would have identified either as black or Dominican. Mm-hmm. Right, and in Los Angeles, no one really questioned what I was until I started speaking Spanish. Mm-hmm. And they would look at me, side-eyed, and go, "What? How do you know right. Spanish?" Because there was no, you know, concentrated Dominican community here, right, uh, for people to associate me with being of Latino Latino right. descent. So, right. um, and I grew up with feeling, "What exactly am I?" Just because I wasn't surrounded by that that community that exists otherwise yeah so right. and my mother was very uh, light-skinned like probably your, your complexion and my dad was more like mine so when people would see me with my mother there was always like this little bit of confusion that was always sort of going on yeah. and especially when you had to fill out forms back in the day there weren't as many options oh and yeah even, not, with my- even though not not enough today to be able to say mm-hmm. what are you we I oftentimes would just put other yeah you know so Those are the choices
1: can... when yeah when my son was in school it was it was black white, interestingly, it was black white, Haitian, or other <laughs> we had a lot was a large Haitian immigrant population back in the day it's not as big anymore, but I always thought that was fascinating that they would ask about race and an ethnic ethnicity question without realizing that they were wedded but I'm glad you just brought that up because that that is actually something that is a uh, is an experience of being in a mixed race family of um not being recognized as my children's mother and that that Mm -hmm. they're not recognized as uh, mine necessarily, not all the time. I definitely got accustomed to that with my son because people would say, are you adopted? That was a big question all the time. And I don't do that as much with my daughter now. It's interesting. I wonder why. Well, she does actually look look like me, but still, anyway, I guess the point is that it is a weird experience to be a part of a mixed race family and to have people not recognize my role as a mother mm-hmm. to my children, or their relationship to me. And I thought, actually, I thought that that would change when I had my daughter. I thought like when we, um, I'm, so I'm, I'm raising the two of them on my own. Their dad lives in Canada. So he's um, even though we're still super close and still consider ourselves family, we're not uh, living together as family. We're not together mm-hmm. anymore. Um, so a lot of times when it's, when we're out in the community, it's my two children and I. And I thought when I had my daughter that, people would like in the community would relax a little bit and see us as a familial unit. But what started to happen was, um, we would walk into like a pizza joint, for instance, and I would be standing next to my son and I'd put in an order and then they'd turn to him and say, and what can I, and, and, you know, or they would tell him like, what can I get you? Assuming that we were, he was a, <laughs> a different customer and not part of the same group. And uh, he'll probably kill me for saying this online, but, um, one of the other quirky things that happens now, that now that he's an adult, he's taller than me, he's got a beard, we go out and people cannot sometimes cannot figure out what our relationship is. So rather mm-hmm. than seeing us as um, mother and son or family of any kind, they assume we're dating, which I can only imagine oh, is so hard yeah. on the psyche of a young man. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well I, I was reading in um one experience that that you had is that you have an elder niece who had mm-hmm. um had a, an opening for some of your work was mistaken for yeah. the mother of the the two younger girls yep um which i thought was sort of interesting it speaks and i think it really spoke to the idea that sort of you know exhibited in in so much of your work is that the lack of imagery of young of young black girls In in popular media, I mean, we have that in terms of celebrities, but in terms of an everyday thing, being able to see ordinary black children of color, you know, in our imagery really has an influence in how they're perceived. And I thought that that the fact that they saw a teenager as being the mother of two kids spoke to this this issue of seeing um, black children, especially black girls, as Mm -hmm. older than they actually are. Mm -hmm. And then the expectations, as a result, impacting them culturally, in school, uh, the way they are treated because of behavioral issues. We've seen many incidents of Mm -hmm. that in in the news where um, that a girl of another ethnicity at that same age acting out would not be treated as as harshly as a girl of color is because because they look at that girl and they see her as. Maybe more physically mature, mature than a comparable child, but she's still mm-hmm. a child. So mm-hmm. when I when I heard that anecdote, I thought, you know, the the importance of the kind of work that you and other photographers are doing, it really stresses the importance of that. And I was wondering about how that reality sort of colors the work as you've produced it over time.
1: Well, I mean, I, I have a few things to say about that, but. One of them is that when I started the project, and still the momentum of the project is is not specifically to create images to counter the void in imagery of um, of, of 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 black children growing up. When I started making the work, of course, I was just spending time with my family. I was spending time <laughs> with the girls that I love, um, the girls I spend Christmas and Thanksgiving with um, every year. You know, uh, we're at every family event together. We're at funerals together. We're at when someone in the family is hospitalized, we're at bedsides together. We are um, breaking bread together all the time. So I was really just photographing the people that I love the most in the world. I really didn't want to make it about representation. I didn't want to make the work about representation because I wasn't trying to make political work. But in time, I realized that, uh, even before the girls and I had conversations about it, in time, I realized that um, it was naive of me to think that I could put this work out there that was showing every everyday, beautiful, ordinary, but lovely moments of childhood, of um, of black childhood, and not have it be, and not have it be politicized in the eyes of others, because um, yeah. it was how people were viewing it. It was, it, it was how people were seeing the work, white, uh, white viewers, white friends who were seeing the work and like, acknowledged that they hadn't, they hadn't seen these types of images before they weren't being shocked for themselves. They were being, they were, their eyes were being opened to the, like the, the lack of imagery that they have. They were, their eyes were being opened to the void. You know, they may have thought that they knew about it in, in an intellectual way, but it, it was becoming like a, a painful moment for them to see that their own lives had been more segregated than they thought they had been when they were looking at images that they had only seen, like the moments that they had only seen in, um, in any kind of visual way in uh, with, with white children rep- representing these like special sweet moments. Like hugs or playing on the beach or um, these like just regular ordinary moments, at any rate, at some point, I just realized like i can't I can't separate this work. it's going to be political. people are going to have reactions to this work because they're not because many people are not accustomed to it, so that was one thing, and then eventually the you know the the girls were getting older, especially my oldest niece, who is really responsible for bringing the conversation to like the younger girls about race and representation, like she brings it to the table and we just had to talk about it. We had to talk about the fact that what does it mean for this work to be out in, in galleries? What does it mean for this work to be uh, representing you? Is it representing you the right way? Like uh, my list, Kayla, you know, we had this long conversation about a year and a half ago about whether or not the work was, whether or not she, how did she, I wanted to know how did she feel about the work being in, gallery spaces? How did she feel about, was it representing her the right way? Did she feel good about that representation? And the interesting thing she brought back from that conversation, or that she taught me in that conversation, was that one of the things that she liked was that she felt uh, authentically represented in the imagery, that she could point to some, I think you mentioned it a little bit earlier, like she could point to some positive Um, representation in terms of like maybe some modern day commercials that are trying to show black families or mixed race families or with celebrities, but she couldn't find something that was representing her, which was the quieter side of her, the more Mm -hmm. contemplative side, more contemplative side of her. And uh, that's what she was feeling happy about that. That was, that there was a place for that. And then I think to circle back around to what I think you were asking you also, we just, you know, eventually decided that even though we weren't making the work, to be about representation we were really happy that once it's out there it is countering that really horrible deep void of, of you know what images exist and what, and what people see so we feel you know we feel like good we're you know we're, we're making this great work and we're keeping track of this like ongoing series of childhood as, as they all grow up but we're also quietly hopefully affecting change
0: I knew that 2020 would be a seminal year for the show, with us reaching our 500th episode. However, I had no idea the environment under which I would be required to continue creating episodes. The circumstances have not made it more difficult to do, but they have resulted in moments of emotional fatigue, which make it difficult to focus and just stay on point. But thankfully I have people who provide me much needed perspective and encouragement. In a small way, I have a role to play and from the many messages I've received over the past few weeks, I know it's being appreciated and that that means a lot. I'm especially grateful for the many people who support the show financially, especially during such times as this. It provides me not only valuable resources, but also a bit of peace of mind for the unpredictable future ahead. If you haven't already, please consider contributing to our Patreon effort. By contributing just five dollars or more a month, you help us to bring you great conversations each week. It's a small amount that makes a huge difference. Join us today by visiting patreon.com forward slash the candid frame. Thank you. Yeah, the, the work is more than just about race, it's, it's as much about Um, self-image, and issues of beauty, and I think it's kind of fascinating that the girls are as much collaborators as they are subjects. Let's talk about how they have come to sort of look at themselves because, because of the fact they're not only being frequently photographed, but they're actually seeing the imagery, and as they get older, really, you know, commenting and and giving you feedback about the work that you're creating, how do you how do you think that, or how have they voiced the the fact how they see themselves, not just in the photographs, but just just uh, just in the in the world?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I'm not sure that they've actually voiced to me how they how they see themselves or how the work has helped them see themselves. Um, mm-hmm. that, I think that's a wonderful question for me to bring bring back to them. But I would say that they've definitely have become collaborators with the work in different ways. Again, my oldest niece, Kayla, is, oh my gosh, she's almost 17. She has a birthday coming up in like two weeks. She's a junior in high school and um, she started taking photography classes about two years ago. So one of the ways that the work directly influenced her is that she became a storyteller. She started to understand narrative and story a visual story Mm -hmm. she's also a lovely poet um quite a gifted poet so i can see how the work has affected her like it led her to have her own passion with the camera um and i also see her as someone who is really blooming she's blossoming she's emerging in so many different ways right now Um, and i would i would guess that the work has helped her embrace her beauty and understand her beauty um and and own it so while I haven't asked her that question directly I, I would I would guess that when she listens to this podcast she's going to be shaking her, her head and agreeing with her auntie so <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and as far as the other girls um Leah and Apple who are both 13 right now they collaborate in different ways Leah is a much quieter soul but when I have been photographing her alone the last year or so she's Uh, quietly letting me like suggesting poses or places or ideas. And uh, one of the strongest images I have of her alone that I got in the last year, it was, it was her vision, you know, and it was really like, she said, I want, I want to go here. I want the, um, it was a image of her lying back in a bunch of um, flowers called mums. And she, you know, she saw it in her head first Mm -hmm. and then asked me to help that happen. And I, I loved that collaboration. My daughter is a great editor. Um, she's a solid, she has a real solid Aries personality. So she does, you know, she doesn't mess around. So if I'll ask her to come look at some images, she's very quick to be like, yeah, that one stays, that one goes. Nope, anybody could have taken that. <laughs> that one's special. Take <laughs> that. Um but she but she can see it, you know, she can see what's inside of a frame. Um she's got an, a, a strong editor's eye. And also my niece, Kayla, the oldest, she is also very useful, very helpful with editing. So uh, we spend a lot of time sending each other images. You know, what do you think of this? Which is the strongest one? Why do you like this one? What do you see in the frame? Is this a keeper? Is this out? Um, She gives very intuitive and thoughtful feedback around the images. So what ends up in the final pick is much more dependent on the girls' collaboration now than it was when it started and they were younger.
0: So what what have you learned about what you were doing because you had their perspective? Did, did they end up revealing something to you about what you were doing that you were oblivious to or, or that was subconscious that they kind of picked up on?
1: Um, I think that Kayla, the oldest, is the one who's probably been able to voice that she's been able to see... A I don't even know if that's a word of like a regality like she she has seen that there's something like a like a strong feminine uh like the divine feminine sometimes we would call it or like a um something regal and quiet and proud in the photographs that keeps repeating over and over mm-hmm. um again so she can definitely see that i think right now my daughter and and, and leah who's 13 i think they're just they're in a different stage I don't think that they could speak to that right now, but I think that they will be able to. I think their stage is that they're 13, they're seventh graders. They're super conscious about what they look like, their dress, their appearance. So that's all, that's also another way that they've brought some collaboration into it. Like they, they, it's very clear with them that they have to have a little bit more agency around what they look like when I'm photographing. You know, do they need to be ready? I can't I can't just pull off like some candids that I used to be able to when they were younger, where their hair might be messy or, you know, the braids might be coming undone or or they you know, had clothes on that they might be considered dorky, but they didn't care at the time.
0: I've been doing working on a personal project where I'm photographing the morning routines of young families. Oh. So I usually visit them on like a Saturday morning soon after they get up and I'm there for about three hours. And um, I'm just still in the early parts of it, but one of the things that, you know, that perked my interest about it was because I'm taking care of a, uh, helping to take care of an adult family member, my mother-in-law. The whole dynamic being parent and child was fascinating to me, and I thought I'd sort of explore it on the other end. Yeah. And every time I've gone to sort of photograph the, the families, it just gave rise to a lot of things that I had not thought about because I haven't had that never had children. So I didn't have any opportunity to see aspects of my life mirrored in the upbringing of my, of my child. And, and I'm wondering how your own perceptions of you growing up as a young girl have been revealed to you, not only as a result of raising a daughter, but also turning a lens to her development.
1: Uh, I had a much, I had a complicated childhood and uh, not one where I felt like, you know, I wasn't really, I wasn't praised, I wasn't really recognized as, uh, like anything special about me wasn't really called to the surface or acknowledged, right? So I I know I'm not alone in that kind of a childhood experience, but one of the things that grew out of that is I definitely developed a desire and an ability to see the light in others and highlight the things that are special about them because not having it is, I, I understand what it feels like not to have those things. I would say that like in, in my work broadly in all of my work, but in the work, particularly with the girls, I'm looking for the, I'm looking for that light. You know, I want to call out and mm-hmm. capture those things about them that are, that are lovely and intimate and special and beautiful, you know? So like, for instance, I, there's this one image that, Uh, Not too many people love, but I love it dearly, and my niece, Kayla, loves it dearly. And it's this image of her, uh, just a a portrait of, like, from her um, shoulders up. And she has, uh, it's at the beach. A lot of our images are, are near the water. And she's just holding her head up in this beautifully proud way, and her neck is just, like has all this detail of sand on it and it's so feminine and so beautiful. It's one, and I'm, I'm not trying to just uh, pat myself on the back. I, I still feel, and I'm sure you understand this feeling, like as a photographer, sometimes you just, the, 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 al- the like the beautiful alchemy of photography is that sometimes you're taking a photograph, but it doesn't really feel like you've done it. It feels like mm-hmm. it's come through you from some divine place or some, some sort of energy was captured and like worked its way through whatever you were trying to, to, to capture there with the camera and that's that, that image that portrait of Kayla is, is one of those where I think I was just com- you know completely enamored with her very specific beauty that it makes her her and and uh and that and that like inner confidence.
0: The work started off as, as very personal when did you start considering that you wanted to put the work out there and not just leave it exclusively to you and your family?
1: Oh, that is also a good question. You just hit me with all the good questions today. Um, I've never been asked that before. So, Well, I, I, I wanted, I, at some point I wanted to share it. I, I did recognize that, um, that it was good work and that it was, you know, I believe photography is communication when it's, when it's done well, or when I feel like when a photographer tapped into some special energy, like I was just mentioning before, like then the, the photograph speaks it's communicating and I felt like it needed it needed an audience to have a dialogue with to like I um, mean to interact with so I started to put it out there and I'm not even I can't even remember when what like what the first couple things I submitted that work to or when it started to get noticed it's interesting I think actually in the beginning uh, people were uh, people who, that I would confide in about the work were pushing me to put the um, the series about my daughter called Appaloosa out more frequently and maybe didn't quite see the magic of cousins or maybe it hadn't come together mm-hmm. yet. But uh at some point it I had enough imagery that it really started to it it had a life of its own and it needed to interact with the world.
0: So how did you choose to to do it? Because I know you've you know you've got honored for for work that you've done in the past, um and, you know, if you've you've gotten out into the you know sort of the photographic world in a variety of different ways. But was it through a portfolio review, submitting the work for possible publication? Exactly how did that manifest itself?
1: Well, interestingly, I have only been to one portfolio review ever, and that was last year. Um, and some lovely things came out of that portfolio review. I actually got um, the work was, I was asked by a curator of the Danforth Museum, this really vibrant, lovely curator. Um, she wanted to include my work in an exhibition this winter. Um and she was the very, she, I, I met with three people at that portfolio re- review and she was the first one I met with. So I thought it was just very serendipitous that I would have had this one review started with her. And then actually she was able to, um, like have a discourse with the work and liked it enough to have it included in the museum show. I'm trying to think now, I'm not really sure where the first places uh, like where cousins started getting attention. It's kind of all, it's been a really wild ride this last year. And it's a little, uh, hard to remember, like all the different
0: moving pieces. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's because it's kind of interesting how things can take on a life of itself. You know, there's some, some bodies of work that I've seen of friends of mine and students that they've been working on. They could have been working on it for a long time or for a finite period of time. And all of a sudden it's just like, it's the match.
1: Yeah.
0: So it triggers it. And all of a sudden they're getting all this attention for, for the work. And you know, one of the challenges is is, is being ready for it and I don't think you're ever really ready for it but it's just like what do you do with this you know
1: that is precisely where I'm at right now <laughs> yeah and I'm trying to figure out like where is the right home for this work also mm-hmm. um, and I don't I sometimes I feel a little hesitant, reticent to um, like to brainstorm that out loud because I don't want to seem ungrateful for anything that's come my way or I don't want to yeah. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to wonder if it's if gallery walls are the right place for it. And then some wonderful gallerist out there hears that and says, well, I'm not going to invite her to my gallery. But one thing I settle on is that I, I want the work to be out in the community more. So I'm trying to figure out, um, I want it to be accessible. You know, I don't, I don't, well, maybe I could segue backwards, like take a step backwards and go to that example that you mentioned about um Kayla being in the at an opening for a show um, in the last year and having the experience of being mistaken for being the mother of her cousin and her uh, younger sister, who are only, there's only a four-year difference between them. She started the evening so excited. She was so excited that her work was on the wall, that she was getting, you know, this recognition that it was her, like that people were looking at it. It was really, really exciting for her by the end of the evening, you know, we had gotten separated cause I was chatting with people. And, um, by the end of the evening, she was super quiet and it took me a while. Like once we got in the car and I went to take the girls out afterwards, it took me a while to, to get her to express, explain what had happened and what dampened her, her mood. And that's when she shared with me that she didn't understand why people kept I, I apparently it was about four different people mistook her for being the mother of the children. Mm-hmm. But I've got to get like a little bit more context too, which is that of course on the wall is a giant explanation that the the work is called cousins. It's not called aunt um, and cousins, <sighs> it's called cousins. There's a you know, a, you know, beautiful not my artist statement, but the curator statement on the wall next to it explaining that this is about childhood and the interaction between the girls. And she was there talking to people, you know, excited to tell them about the work and her experience with it. Yeah. So that I, I think that the there was a le- like you know a level of invisibility for her too. That here was all of mm-hmm. these context clues for the viewers that they still chose to you know maybe they didn't consciously choose to ignore it, but on some level they did not pick up on the context clues or pay attention or believe them, and then still like told their own narrative about her. Oh. She must be the mom.
0: Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. That and inherent bias that yeah. people are just unconscious about that you right. can't help but have as a result of living in the world that you do.
1: Yeah. Right. It's kind of like a, it's like that default. It's like, you know, I was laughing with you earlier about the idea of like, I go out into the world with my son and we get mistaken for, for, for dating. But I, I think what happens is that people just can't figure it out. It throws them they can't figure out the relationship It throws them off balance a little bit. So they just shift to their default, like Mm -hmm. what they, what is easy for them to believe. And I think that's what happened to my niece as well. So having experiences like that or being, um, oftentimes they are the only, they are the only people of color at an opening or, uh, or there's few people of color to, you know, like, um, with them at an opening. And so that's also like an experience that's interesting for them to be having. And it's a bit awkward for me. Like, what does this mean? I'm trying to show my work, but who am I showing it to? And what are they taking away from it? And I'm sure they're taking away lots of good things too. I think that's partly why the work is um, gaining in some popularity because I think people of all races can enter the work in different ways. You know, either they're um, recognizing something that they experience as a child, or it looks like their own childhood, or they're seeing something that looks familiar, but they've never seen children of color doing this type of activity that reminds them of a ch- their childhood, or they're or they're just relating to the familiarity and the the family connection in it, but I just wonder over time, what is it like for the girls and myself to have that, you know, to have that work and like be on, be on display like that. I don't want a gallery show to, of course it's being on display, but I don't want it to be on display in that other kind of context. So I would love figure out um, where else the work can live and where else it can live in the, in the community. So that like the, the void that I keep talking about filling is Oh, what am I trying to say? I'm losing my
0: train of no, thought here. I just... I can, you got, yeah, I, com- you I, com- no, I completely get you. I completely okay. get you, because I think that is absolutely sort of important. I grew up in the... I was a kid during the 70s, and uh, I remember being in elementary school, and we would watch these, um, these 8 millimeter films or these, like, sound sync presentations where they had slides in a ca- ca- uh, carousel alongside mm-hmm. with a little tape, audio. So I really am an old man. For <laughs> I, I'm right there with I you. I grew up in the '70s too. But one of the things that I picked up on when I was a kid, without really anyone having to sort of explain it to me, but when I would, when a, a face, a brown face, would show up on the screen, I would hear a really strong negative reaction from the black kids in the class, and if they looked like traditionally black features. Mm-hmm. You would hear comments. Oh, she's ugly. Oh, look at that nose. Any other race up there, they weren't making any sort of comments, and it really, it it really stuck with me yeah. that these these kids. And I'm talking about elementary school. I'm not even talking about junior. This is elementary school, second, third, fourth grade. I'm hearing this stuff, and it was so much that 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 that, that subtext of that this anything that looks like this is ugly, is negative, right. is bad. So I, I completely get you in terms of even today that positive imagery of just ordinary kids, of ordinary people, it's as essential now as it's ever been. So I think you're really on point in terms of wanting to find an outlet for, for that work so that, you know, kids like your daughter and your nieces and their cousins have a chance to, to, to see this. Cause yes, you have. People like Beyonce and all these people that are prevalent as celebrities, which is all well and good. But when someone isn't able to see themselves right. in just ordinary people, it has an impact. I grew up seeing it, experiencing it. So um, I completely uh, understand why you want to find a place for it that, you know, it won't completely heal that that wound, but it can help so many Young people to really consider how they see themselves, right, so yeah, but uh, I think with time you will kind of sort of figure that figure that out because I think um you know the gallery space is a very very small niche of mm-hmm. of the world, and it's not as you experienced uh, with that one exhibit with the, the people largely in attendance, you know there there may not be a lot of minority people there unless that gallery sort of caters to that particular audience.
1: And I can say I had a very different time recently this uh, early winter, you know, in New York City. I went to go see the new Black Vanguard at the Aperture Gallery. Oh, OK. And, you know, it was just, I mean, first of all, the work was astounding. It was gorgeous, beautiful, deep, inspiring. The gallery space is cool, but it's a multiracial uh, audience or not audience, but, you know, viewers. And it's so different than the experience in the greater Boston area.
0: In producing the work and putting it out there, I wonder if you have any sort of concerns uh, about how people um, see you and you um, getting the exposure for the work that you're you're getting. Because um, cause I know that photographers are there of color who will say, well, I've seen this work before. I or other people have produced just this kind of work. Um, why is she getting all this attention? I can't help but feel like that you may have at least thought about it, even if you haven't been subject to that kind of reaction today.
1: Yeah, no, I've definitely thought about it because I'm one of those people that might <laughs> go see go see some work, and I'm thinking, why is this white woman? Why is this white person? You know, photographing a community that doesn't belong to them. Like, I will, I am that voice. I I can bring that um, frustration into a situation. I mean actually I can I can give you another example of another opening I did, I did not have work in this opening but another local opening that I went to um with my with my niece and we we watched a gentleman artist explain uh, talk about his work that was on the wall he was uh, Caucasian probably in his 60s and his work was black children in boston uh, black cuban women and some other place where he had traveled and photographed and, you know, Kayla and I were standing there listening, and like slowly, you know, both of us are, you could see the tension rising in our bodies. Um, somebody asked the question about like, were the people comfortable being photographed? And his take on it was like, oh, yeah, absolutely, they were comfortable being photographed. They didn't mind at all. Um, and we were just, you know, had to debrief about um, afterwards, debrief about like, well, what did, what did that mean for him? What power structures mm-hmm. was he not paying attention to? Could this woman who, has this camera on her in a third, third world country? Um, you know, could she really say no to this man? You know, just we just have to debrief. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so, anyway, to, to get back to your point, yeah, I, I I hear what you're saying. I have been that person um, questioning those things, and I uh, have definitely wondered uh, whether or not someone uh, that I'm going to be perceived as um, photographing that something, you know, something that's not my business. But what 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 I think. I think the first entry point for people is that the love that I have for the girls because they're my blood they're my family that mm-hmm. that stands out in the work first and foremost, and so it becomes i think it softens the edges of the fact that I'm white photographing ch- children of color you know it softens the edges and like allows more people to i don't know just like you know think more uh deeply about what my
0: role is in that but as you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. um, I, as the kids get older, they want to have a lot more control over how they're represented in photographs. And you spoke that your niece is already kind of there because she, she's sort of setting up the, the, the shots a little more. Um, but some of the images that I saw that you, that I really loved, seem to be more of sort of candid, genuine moments. And in terms of still being able to get those shots as the girls become that much more image conscious and aware of your camera, are you finding that great, capturing such moments is becoming more difficult? Do you have to practice some new tricks uh, in order to be able to get those moments without the girls going, no, no, let's let's do it this way. let's let me change this.
1: Yeah, no, um, I'm very lucky that way. um, I would again say like with my oldest niece, right? She's in high school and she's not not pushing back at all because she is a photographer and Mm -hmm. she does understand what it feels like to be on the other side of the lens and to get that like that feeling where you, you, that tingle in you that almost feels like you're, you know, about to you know like you're falling in love you feel that moment you have to get it you so she she can respond really well if I'm with them and I feel that moment and I I need to pick up the camera she she will respect it and she kind of sets the tone for the other girls mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm super lucky that way she's also um she's also really a free spirit so she is she's willing to be imperfect or perfect depending on what the mood is like for for an for an image she's just not attached to having to look a certain way so she does kind of set that tone um and and she's a creative person you know she so she doesn't she's a creative person her eyes are on the prize she's like thinking about what colleges that she's going to get into and you know just constantly like aiming towards her future so she's not like preoccupied too much with fashion or dating and things like that so i'm 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 lucky because i know i have uh I have friends and acquaintances who photographed girls and i know that there often comes a point where girls are like yeah that's enough. That's you're not Mm going to photograph me anymore. I'm not comfortable with this. And, um, that hasn't happened for me yet. Um, and the younger girls, I mean, they definitely have ideas, but they, about how they want to look, but they'll do that beforehand. So it's like, I can't sneak attack them too often, but with, um, with photographing, I kind of have to say like, I'm going to photograph today. We're going to hang out and photograph. So that gives them a little chance ahead of time to like prepare so that their hair looks good or, you know, my daughter's baby hairs are, are brushed down, or um, when they have the right outfit on, or whatever that kind of thing. Um, but to get a little bit more to what you're saying, so for with my daughter, since I have this ongoing series called Appaloosa, um, we did ha- we we did have to take a break. We had to take a pause in between the work that I did when she was younger, which was all very candid. To Ease into something else. And I think we've finally like figured out how we are going to do that work because for her, especially because we have a mother daughter relationship, Mm -hmm. she is not, um, she needs much more agency in general, right? Because I'm her mom. So she needs much more agency in whatever it is that the two of us are doing together. So we've kind of just shifted into um, my having to learn a kind of a new way to approach photographing her. And the images that are coming out, um, they are, well, I wouldn't say they're more polished, but they're like a bit less candid. And she's she's engaging with the audience and the camera in a different way. You know, she's got a gaze, it's her gaze, it's her look, and she's bringing it to the camera. And I, I'm not going to be able to photograph her like a chapter two of the series unless I allow mm-hmm. that to happen. Yeah. So I've had to adjust and that seems like, the way it should be between a mother and a daughter when you have a daughter <laughs> this age yeah
0: <laughs> well my last question that i ask each guest is i ask them to recommend another photographer and it can be anyone someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered so with that photographer be and why
1: yeah this has been painstakingly hard trying to figure out <laughs> who to say because i i have so many people that i admire and a couple of them have been on your show um but uh, what what I've settled on is I'm going to uh, recommend Al Thompson and I found Al Al on um, Instagram maybe I don't know two or three years ago. He's got this beautiful series called um, Remnants of an Exodus um, in which he chronicles the um, the gentrification of a, of a suburban New York town and how that gentrification has affected the um, mostly West Indian immigrant population there and his images are they're just magic but it's like a very subtle magic they're 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 poems and um just one other thing i just want to say in case anybody hears this and decides to follow or look up al thompson is that he has probably the best instagram stories ever they're oh, just okay. yeah they're just full of magic i mean sometimes he's writing poetry sometimes he's uh just like stream of consciousness sometimes he's um talking about his childhood in jamaica and they're just lovely and he's just a lovely person and a beautiful photographer
0: oh i look I look forward to go delving through his uh his stream yeah well, Kristen, thank you so much this is a real joy it was a nice way to spend my saturday afternoon with you
1: thank you so much i cannot thank you enough for giving me this opportunity and it was lovely to chat with you too
0: thanks to Kristen for joining us find out more about her and her work by visiting christianjoymackphotography.com and if you're a devoted listener and subscribe to the show write us a review on whatever service you listen to podcasts those reviews have led people to take a chance on our show and allowed us to grow thanks to hippos and hand grenades for their five-star review you can also subscribe to our youtube channel and our mailing list On the YouTube channel, I offer critiques on images submitted by TCF listeners like you, while the mailing list keeps you updated on all TCF events, including workshops and more. Sign up today. And remember, you can support the show by contributing to our Patreon effort or via a one-time or reoccurring donation through PayPal. Thanks to Catherine Jack, Dean Glaw, Christina Van Dyke, Nick Gabonet, Carol Weitz, and Steve Shulman for their recent contributions. We really appreciate it. We also provide a series of photography ebooks on photography available for purchase on our website. It's my way of sharing my experience and knowledge of photography and another way for you to support the show. And if you found that you can't find every episode on the show on whatever service you listen to, download the Candor Frame app, which is available for both Apple iOS and Android. And because of your generosity, it's free to download and use. No additional purchases are required. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker. And our music is from Kevin McCloud, whose royalty free music can be found at Incombatech.com. And this is EbodyNX, and this is The Candid Frame.